The first time I realised I was homesick was when I got kicked in the nuts by a goat. So that wasn't actually me talking, I'm quoting someone else. I'm Marsha from YesYesMarsha.com and today is the next in the Adventish calendar of stories. And it's a guest story from one of my favourite musicians and one of my favourite storytellers, a gentleman called David Berkeley, who plays music that makes me want to collapse on the ground weeping and then tells stories that make me bent double laughing. Um, He, a few years ago, went to go and live in Corsica, which is a little island off Italy where everybody, except for David, speaks French. And he was living in a tiny village of 32 people with his wife, Sarah, who was doing research there, and his two-year-old son, Jackson. Um, And this is from a book he wrote, uh, which this song actually, uh, sorry, this story is the title of the book as well, 140 Goats and a Guitar. And he wrote it to accompany the album that he wrote when he was out there. And so this is about a song called Homesick, which I'm going to play at the end and which I really love because as a transplant, I've been living in Canada for six years. The main line of the song is homesick is hard when you don't know just where it is that you call home, which is often how I feel. Anyway, enjoy. This is David Berkeley with 140 goats and a shirtless shepherd. One day in early March, Jackson and I were called on to accompany Sarah on one of her countless anthropological excursions. We had been to the top of a lot of mountains, pilgrimages, the Corsicans call them, to participate in outdoor masses and crumbling chapels. We had waited outside museums while Sarah was given tours, outside restaurants while she interviewed someone or other, outside churches while she took singing lessons. We had gone to see cheesemakers and woodworkers, had to put on shower caps and gloves and cellars where charcuterie makers cure their meat. We had endured long and tedious dinners so that Sarah could record conversations after the wine had set in and people talked loosely. I had managed to occupy and entertain Jackson in some of the most uncomfortable, steep, thorny, arid, child-unfriendly spots in the entire world. Our modus operandi was to never turn down an invitation, and unless absolutely necessary, to never leave early. This time, we were going to find a shepherd. The road to the shepherd's land was not really a road, but rather a couple ruts in a boulder-strewn field. With every bumpy meter, I felt our chances of ever being able to drive back out dwindle. We found the correct route with the help of numerous townsfolk, asking where the shepherd lived. He didn't need a name. His place had no address, was not on a road at all, in fact. It was smack in the middle of a field. I pictured a guy like Moses, an old wind-blown man in a long white robe full of face lines with wild hair and a wilder beard. The man who emerged from his little shack when we finally found it, however, was several years younger than me and had close-cut hair. He was strong, he was handsome, and he was not wearing a shirt. We gave the bizou the traditional kiss on both cheeks, a custom practiced between two men as well. I got more used to this as the year went on, but never quite got it right. Sometimes I planted my lips too squarely on the other man's cheek or too close to his mouth. Sometimes I let the stubble on our faces rub too much, and I never knew what I was supposed to do with my hands. The bizou was always at least a little awkward for me, and it was all the more awkward when one or both of us wasn't wearing a shirt. After the shepherd and I kissed, he invited us into his place. It was a single room with no electricity. Dried meat and herbs hung from the walls. Flies circled a sticky fly strip. 
The couch in the corner he motioned me toward was an abandoned row of seats from a passenger van. He gave Jackson a box of juice and offered one to me. Jackson was delighted. I hadn't had a box of apple juice in quite some time, so I accepted as well. We poked our tiny straws through the tinfoil-covered holes, and I took Jackson outside to see what we could see and let Sarah get to work. The door to the shack had two swinging sections, upper and lower. Both closed abruptly behind us, leaving Sarah alone with the shirtless shepherd and leaving Jackson and me alone in a vast, dusty field. We entertained ourselves for about 30 minutes or so with excitement, exploring the shelters where the goats were fed, climbing up and down on the big rocks. For a while, we had a great time running around and enjoying our juice. My only real challenge was stopping Jackson from eating what must have looked like thousands of little chocolates scattered all over the ground. Eventually, though, the face of the shepherd emerged from behind the top half of his wooden door. He yodeled loudly, in Corsican, I assumed, and within minutes, 140 goats descended from the high hills. This number, by the way, was provided later. There were far too many for me to get a good count at the time. Upon seeing them start to appear, the shepherd smiled at me. It was a strange sort of grin, a little mischievous, I thought. I wasn't sure if it had to do with the descending goats or with the fact that he was in a small hut with my wife. Either way, he disappeared quickly, closing the door loudly behind him. Jackson was thrilled. He had never seen so many goats. I had never seen so many goats. They were curious and frisky and let him pet them. It occurred to me, though, in a semi-frightened flash, that I really didn't know the first thing about goats. I certainly didn't know anything about this breed of goats. Were they clean? I didn't know. Were they dangerous? No idea. Would they bite? Couldn't say. I didn't know the answers to any of these questions, but with my little son surrounded, just the fact I had started to even ask them at all seemed answer enough. I needed to find a safe escape, and I needed to find it quickly and subtly, not wanting to transfer my goat anxiety onto Jackson. I weighed my choices. Sarah had the keys to the car, and I didn't think we could go back into the shack. What would I say? Mind if we pop in for another juice? Then I spotted the one raised feature in the landscape, aside from the boulders, most of which had already been claimed by the bigger goats. It was a broken-down blue Ford pickup. It seemed like my only possibility. I moved quickly, hoisting Jackson up and into the truck bed. I set him down and then climbed in after him, relieved, standing now as if on an altar above a sea of goats. For a moment, there was something incredibly beautiful about the scene. We were safe up there. From the new elevation of the truck bed, we could see beyond the trees and the edge of the hill, and all around us was the Mediterranean. It was a brilliant blue and stretched forever until it vanished into the sky. That happens occasionally on Corsica. The mountains block the coastline so you can forget you're on an island. Then suddenly, the water reveals itself quietly, endlessly. The sun was on its way across the sky, soon to dip behind the western mountain peaks. Everything was turning gold. There was no noise except for the pleasing sound of the goat bells and the wind rattling a couple of hanging pots on the side of the shack. The calm flatness of the water was in striking contrast with the mountains beside us and with the backs and horns of all those goats bumping against each other. The sea was full of possibility and hope. I put my arm around Jackson, wondering if he was taking it in, if he would one day remember that moment and that view. A loud banging on metal ended their reverie. I looked down and saw two of the more rambunctious hoofed beasts trying to mount the truck. 
The prospect of being in the confines of the truck bed with Jackson and a couple of goats didn't seem good at all. So just as fast as we climbed up, we climbed back down, more awkwardly this time, as I had to maneuver the drop with Jackson in my arms. Before I knew it, there we were, back in the mess of animals. At this point, I think they knew they had me, could smell my fear. I was visibly agitated, trying to shield Jackson from the animals that were rearing up on two legs to get a closer look at us. They had driven us up into the truck, and now they had driven us back down from the truck. We were vastly outnumbered, and the goats were only getting more rambunctious the longer we remained among them. I twisted this way and that way, trying to turn my back on the ones that seemed the most aggressive. Up until this point, I was holding Jackson in my arms, his chest against mine, his back to the goats. But suddenly, this no longer seemed high enough, and so desperate to keep him safe, I lifted him up and onto my shoulders. I got him up there, but in doing so, I left my midsection unguarded and exposed. The goats saw their opening and wasted no time taking advantage. A frisky kid reared back onto its hind legs and nailed me with a double-hoofed punch straight into my nuts. The pain was immediate and acute. I grunted loudly, folded over, and then collapsed onto the ground. Somehow I shielded Jackson from the fall, but he cried in fear and scurried out of my grip. Upon hearing our yells, Sarah ran from the house, followed closely behind by the shepherd. He went right for his animals, stroking a few of their heads and beards and reassuring them with words that sounded half Corsican, half goat. Sarah scooped Jackson up and helped brush me off. We looked at each other. I was just kicked in the gonads by a goat, I managed to tell her in a weak and labored voice. It was definitely a low point. I looked awful, red in the face, surrounded by goat shit, covered in dust, two pathetic empty juice boxes beside me. We burst into laughter. Sarah was full of pity. You know, DB, she said, after we had said our awkward goodbyes to the shepherd and thanked him for his strange hospitality, I could never do any of this without you. I know, I said, now back in the car, trying hard to get us out of that field. I couldn't either, Sarah. And it was true. I meant it in a big sense, raising our son, finding a path through the world. Still, I had just been asked to protect Jackson from a bunch of goats in a shelterless field and had been taken down in the process. I couldn't help thinking that, were it not for Sarah dragging us out there in the first place, I would never have had to do any of this without her. At some point, on our drive back to our village, long after I caught my breath, well after I managed to get our car back onto a paved road, and after I had stopped feeling sorry for myself, both Sarah and Jackson fell asleep. Looking at Sarah beside me, at Jackson in the rear view, at the mountains we were driving through, I felt a powerful surge of love for them. The thing with the goats, as I came to call it, left me feeling pretty displaced, pretty far from the world I knew, pretty out of sorts. Still, I had my family. I wasn't alone. Things could never get that bad. I started thinking about what life would be like on Corsica or anywhere really without them. The world around me might be just as beautiful, the air just as clean and clear, but all I'd see was their absence. An old man named Antoine lived beside us in our village. He had a little terrace farm on a nearby hillside. He'd be out there at all hours working the land. He particularly liked working in the early mornings. Above Antoine's plot was a flowing spring where we got our drinking water. It came out of a little spout in the mouth of a carved stone lion. We had running water, but the water from La Source seemed to taste better. I liked carrying our big glass jug along the moss path, which if you continued on it past a couple of donkeys and broken-down huts 
brought you to a trail that would lead seemingly forever through the mountains. I would go out there very early in the morning, the moon sitting low in the sky, and if lucky, Jackson still sleeping. There was a stone wall beside the fountain, and I would sit there as the sky lightened. I couldn't see Antoine from where I sat, but I could hear him working, and when I had my guitar, he could hear me. I envied him at work in those early hours. I envied his rootedness. He was born in that village. His mom was born in that village. He knew no other home. I envied what I imagined was his sense of peace and purpose. In those moments, Antoine and I couldn't have been more different. He seemed almost a part of the landscape. I had moved eight times in ten years, and the closest thing I had to a home was a storage unit in Atlanta that held most of our belongings. There were times, like after that day with the shepherd, or when I was struggling to understand the conversations swirling around me, when I would feel that familiar pit in the stomach, a kind of unease, a restlessness. I was feeling a strange brand of homesickness. The island was so beautiful, how could I long to be anywhere else? What's more, what home was I longing for? So I imagined a scenario where I was living on Corsica without my family, overwhelmed by a longing for a home that I no longer had. The sentiment was so powerful, a melody came quickly. As I realized that I didn't have a home to return to, the very concept of home shifted. What I needed was to be with my family, for them to be okay. What I was longing for was them. Home was no longer where I grew up or where Sarah and I had lived the longest. It was no longer a place in the world at all. It was my family, and if they weren't okay, then I would be unhinged and full of a longing that felt a lot like a longing for home. That was David Berkeley with 140 Goats and a Shirtless Shepherd. And now this is the song that he wrote inspired by that. This is David Berkeley with Homesick. Homesick is hard when you don't know just where it is that you come home. I don't know how this roof's gonna hold It's all so cold It's been snoring too hard, I fear Yes, I know it's pretty here And the air is clear But the years aren't passing Fast enough this way Maybe you can say now I'm not sure how I'm calling out for that I am crying out for that Homesick is hard when you don't know Just where it is that you come home There's a place that the old man knows Where the moon sits low Where he goes to think things through I have asked him to think of you It may come true Been hoping that he might wish you here today Or maybe
mind when you don't know just where it is that you come home so home and close and don't let go cause through it all I love you so I love you so You can find out more about him on his website, David Berkeley, B-E-R-K-E-L-E-Y.com. I'm Marsha from YesYesMarsha.com. Thank you so much for listening. If you are already part of the Yes Yes family, then thank you. And if not, if you've just stumbled across this on SoundCloud or on iTunes, then this is part of an Adventist calendar of stories where I've been sending out a different true story every single day in December. And then I'm going to throw in one on January the 1st as well, because why not? And I usually over at YesYesMarsha.com tell stories and also write blogs about how to tell compelling stories and how to be unforgettable if you want to come over there and join the yes yes family to get even more stories and secrets that i won't put on the internet then come over to yes yes i'm marcia i'll speak to you next time